to an episode of Downton Gabby, also called Gilded Gabby. We'll be talking about Gilded Age episodes four through seven. And you know, we're just three gals sitting in front of your front door holding a bag of old shoes, just asking you to listen to our opinions. I'm Shannon in Seattle. I'm Brandy in Los Angeles. And I'm Teresa in Brooklyn. I guess we can start with the shoes. <laughs> if we're going to start with the shoes, we have to start with Bloomingdale's. What's wrong with Marion is the question I want to ask. Yeah, that's a good question. Where do we start? Right. I actually went to HBO's website because I'm really interested in what HBO thinks Marion is. Like, because I don't think that we think what they think. May I read you their description of Marion? Yes, please. Our principal heroine. Mm. Let's just start there. Mm. <laughs> what? Lovely and strong. Okay. In one way, Marion knows that her probable fate will be to marry as well as she can and survive. But she wants more than this. She is curtailed by the rules of her time. But there is a modern streak in her, too. She wants to do something with her life. Does she? Does she? She doesn't seem to want to work. She goes to these charity things. Oh, she worked at one table at the bazaar. Okay. Does, does HBO, and by extension Julian, really think that she's the star of this series? I think Mr. Russell is our hero. I thought Bertha was the hero of the series. Bertha is, I think, certainly from like a storytelling perspective, the heroine, because she's the only one with a drive. She's the only one with a goal that she's working towards every episode. I mean, maybe they think Marion has one with her like little side romance with Mr. Rakes, but like she doesn't really have anything else going on. I would pick Peggy as a heroine before I would pick her because again, she has a goal that she's working towards. Peggy's far more of a heroine than Marion is. And Peggy has a whole life. Well, okay, Marion can't be the heroine because she's the only one that get, didn't get invited to the party. You mean the the New York Times building party? Yeah. I don't. Is that her dark night of the soul moment? Yeah. <laughs> she didn't get invited. The carriage picnic. I honestly did love the scene where Bertha was like, oh, could have invited you, but didn't. Like, it was very like, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> that was kind of jaw-dropping, although I loved it. I loved that Bertha was like, well... But Mr. Rakes is a man, and we needed another man. And there are only four places in the carriage. So we invited some woman whose name we don't even know, but she's going to be there instead. Let's talk about the romance then, I guess, between Marion and Mr. Rakes. And I kind of thought by now we would have really, like, revealed him to be a scoundrel. Uh, an adventurer. <laughs> like, I, I still think Agnes is right. Yeah. The show seems to be presenting the opposite argument to go, he hasn't really done anything wrong on any other front, right? Other than just being a little forward, but Marion seems into it. How'd he get into that opera box? It's so exclusive. Yet he's there in the box next to her. And I'm- Him and Oscar Van Ryan are like the only young single men or something. <laughs> exactly. A young, handsome man with a frock coat and a top hat can go far in this society. But it is kind of shady. Like the whole thing's so super shady. Yeah. In the last episode, Marion's like ticking off all the families that he di- he's dined with. And I'm like, does this guy ever pay for his own dinner? Yeah, I would have thought that his arc would have taken us somewhere it's coming it's coming you know he's going to drop marion like a hot potato and go after what's her face i don't know what her name is 
Doesn't matter. She's loaded and she's interested in him. Yeah. And then when he was like, I love you. And it's like, mm, okay, I think you're just trying to get into her pants. A little. He honestly wasn't even like, I, I love you. He was like, we love each other. And I was like, when was that established, mister? Like, I don't think she's agreed to that. I don't think you've gotten that far and you're like two promenades around the block. You know, when they were at Mrs. Chamberlain's little hideaway for their dirty lunch. Dirty <laughs> lunch. I felt like he really was trying to get into her pants. Or oh, yeah. Corset. And when Peggy busted in on them, he was definitely trying to get into that room. Yes. He's definitely trying to cop a feel under the bustle. Like, no question. It's gotta take some time. There's a lot of lot of layers there in those clothing. I feel like that scene did sort of establish that maybe Peggy is a little bit more of a woman of the world than Marion is. Does she have a secret husband? Does she have a secret child? I think it's one or the other. And I hope it's not going to interfere with Mr. Hunky Editor. He is such a hunk, Mr. Fortune. That w- I would much rather be spending time on that flirtation than Rakes and Marion. Oh, yeah. His biceps are as sharp as his wit. He's also based on a real person, which makes him a little bit more interesting. I don't know about the secret baby thing. She just doesn't seem like someone who would abandon a baby. I think it's secret marriage. It's easy to accidentally get married. And then what, like something happened to him? Like she's a she's secretly a young widow? Ooh, maybe. I still feel like smart money's on the secret baby. However, the real question is what does she need a lawyer for? Bringing Mr. Rakes back into the narrative. Well, that's why I think it's the secret husband she's trying to get a divorce from. And of course, it's still very hard to get divorced in this time period. I feel like her father got involved in something to do with her life and busted something up. It's got to be something. I wish they would show more of her parents because honestly, that lunch scene in episode four that ends with the uh, sad boot incident was like one of the more interesting conversations that has happened on the show. I really am just like so interested in everything with her family. And I love when she came over to see her mom and her mom was playing the piano so beautifully and waiting for a student. And I'm just so curious. Like, I want to hear more about their family. It's just, it's very rich and grounded in reality where, you know, a lot of the stuff with like Agnes and Ada is just like, I'm saying crazy things, blah, 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 blah. But the family drama of Peggy just feels really rooted in reality. And I, I want to spend more time with it. It, it does feel really real. And, um, you know, when they're sitting at lunch and her father mentions his uncle and how he eats and it's this really sort of amusing little scene. And then he offhandedly sort of says, oh, he got sold off to someone. Mm-hmm. I looked up the dates and it is less than 20 years since emancipation, since the 13th Amendment. And that's like, I, I just read in the notes here, that's like the mid 2000s for us. Yeah. The Civil War and slavery in the South, anyway, is so fresh. And and so that just comment about his uncle, they're sitting in this very beautiful, well-appointed home. They're clearly affluent. They're clearly very nicely settled. And then this comment about his uncle who was sold. And they don't, don't know what happened to him. Yeah. Wow. Agnes, you know, also mentions the Civil War when she's comforting Ada. So the Civil War is like really alive for them like it just really just happened 
I think it would be great if the show would get into the reverberations of that a little bit more. That's not quite the show that we're watching, you know? Um, but to me, it always is the most interesting when we, when it feels like our, our world just, you know, a hundred plus years ago, instead of, you know, some made up society that it feels like half the time. And a lot of the characters seem to be like sort of not nearly as racist as they should be probably for the time period, which is nice. I mean, I don't really want to watch people just being horrible to Peggy all the time, but it's also like, how realistic is it that Agnes would like scold her own maid for being a bit racist? I noticed when they were having dinner with Clara Barton after the whole fundraising hoopla Mm -hmm. that Peggy wasn't there and I thought okay right that makes sense Peggy would not be invited to sit at their table for dinner but then Marion explains it away like she oh she's working on her article in her room it's like that's not why she's not at dinner exactly exactly I mean I like seeing her interact with the characters but if to get more time with her I would also enjoy more of you know Brooklyn and that part of town instead of just being like let's make sure there's an excuse for her to be at every white character's event her mother says something great she has a great line when she runs into Marion when she's come to see Peggy she says Peggy's place is in Brooklyn I'm paraphrasing so she can enter through the front door yeah yeah that was a great line yeah and once again something Marion has not even like thought about I mean let's be real Peggy is one of the best characters of this show I mean, she's very well-written, very well-rounded, and also very well-acted. That actress is incredible. Also, her dresses, I'm, like, super into. (laughs) I think she's one of the best-dressed characters. She is rocking some velvet. Oh, yeah. Even though it's like she's supposed to be kind of more of a demure dress variety, you know, compared to Bertha Russell, I think that her dresses are phenomenal. Should we talk about the boot incident? What more is there to say? I do love that Peggy really like told her off and was like, you don't understand what my life is like. I literally paused the show and I was like, I need a second. (laughs) I mean, I can't even think of, I mean, we were talking about succession earlier before we started this. I can't even think of anything more cringy in succession than this boot incident. It was so bad. It was so bad. I like that Peggy told her off. And I like that Peggy's mother did not sort of brush it off. She, like, looked at her and was like, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, did you think we were poor? What were you thinking? Yeah, I mean, there's there's levels that they're trying to do here with the story of how, you know, Peggy walks through the world versus how Marion walks through the world. And some scenes maybe work better than others. I mean, I thought that was, like a good scene that they went there, but it was very hard to watch. (laughs) And I loved seeing Peggy so happy at the Edison picnic party, you know, with the hunky editor. And she just seemed so at home and she had her little, I think their little pins they were wearing were to show that they were reporters for the globe. And I don't know. She just looked really happy and proud. And I was like, Oh, she's on her way up in the world. She has had several scenes where she's just like, just so elated when T. Thomas Fortune tells her that the circulation went up because of her article. How on earth would they know that? How do you even know they clicked on that? And then when he did, like, the episode before when he had assigned the article to her, he was like, 200 words. And I was like, that is so few words. It's literally, like, a long paragraph. I would love to know more about the newspaper business, all of that. I just feel like a lot of those, like, sort of world-building things that are 
you know, happening on the periphery are what's actually like more interesting to me. Not that I didn't absolutely love the scene where we discussed how to set an American table versus how to set a British table. We have to give some Julian love. The whole luncheon drama was peak Julian, perfect Julian. And this is why we watch this stuff. This whole, yeah, setting an American table and a British table and the two butlers facing off and then Agnes coming in just catastrophically embarrassing herself and everybody trying to cover up for her. I mean, this is just so classic Julian and it's just like, yes, that is why Julian is a great escape. This is the thing he does best and especially because he set it up in a previous episode, you know, with the whole uh, pumpkin incident. Multiple episode arc about leading up to this lunch. <laughs> I love it. This is why I'm watching his show. I mean, it was so good. And then you have the sort of epilogue denouement which is basically Agnes ignoring Bannister completely oh my god it's so great and I love it and she's like really good at it like she's such a good mean girl I would wither tell Bannister that I might want to eat at half past eight like oh my god and Ada's so used to it she just like is playing along she's obviously had to go through this before (laughs) I really like Bannister as a character like I think that actor really like injects a lot of fun into like every line and just like the little things like how after Bertha offered him the hundred dollars he like kind of skipped across the road (laughs) and and never once like considered not doing it which was refreshing because like another thing that's sort of eye-rolly about Julian stuff is how like loyal the servants are to their family and he was kind of like for a C note, hell yeah, I'm going to lie to her, you know? I don't quite know what he was thinking. How was he going to get away with that one? It's right across the street. Like, I knew he was going to get caught. So many people knew that he was going to be there. Like, did he really think absolutely nobody was going to tell her? It's all for the C note. He loved it. He was just like seduced by the money. He's ready to open a bank account. He's moving up in the world too. So I want to back up to the first encounter between Bannister and Church. And Bannister just gets bitchier and bitchier, like, through this whole conversation. But it wasn't, it was, like, the best bitchiness because it was, like, he was brightly almost complimenting them. Like, oh, how fascinating. How interesting. Yes. Oh, my. What colorful glasses. Should we not use colored glasses? Like... (laughs) And in England, we use the square formation of our glasses. And we eat asparagus with our fingers? Like, what? That was, I mean, that was just too much. That was probably my Come favorite on. line when Church was like, let's avoid the asparagus. <laughs> I love the French cook, too. Like, I, I really am liking every glimpse of the downstairs dynamics we get at each house. Like, they've they become a lot more entertaining in this set of episodes than they were in the first few that we discussed. Yeah, they're growing. Yeah. I mean, we did get the weird side storyline with the... Um, young maid confessing that she was a victim of abuse and then never ever ever mentioning it again which is just kind of like oy vey these one-off things that are meant to like humanize they each have their own bedraggled stories and then we've got the woman from center stage who has the horrible mother (laughs) you know mrs armstrong yeah like was that meant to make her more sympathetic because I think that was the point. I don't know if that was the effect. Again, I think that that we're working in two different universes sometimes from, like, 
what the show thinks it's doing and what we actually are perceiving is happening. But yeah, Mrs. Armstrong, I didn't really feel bad for her because honestly, I don't know enough about her to, to care that much. Yeah, exactly. This is a technique that like never really works on me where it's like, oh, this character's nasty to other people because someone else is nasty to them and they're just like passing it on. I'm actually curious... Um, you know, to the five people listening to this podcast. Uh, it's like at least 25, okay? <laughs> okay, 25 people. I would love to hear what you all think. I would really like to know, is it just the three of us that are in this sort of delusion and you guys are all on board with this storyline and it all totally works? I'm really curious. Yeah. I'd love to hear from you. Is there someone out there, like, making a fan cam of Marion and Mr. Rakes and we're just, like, bitter about bitter old hags over here being like she's fucked. Is anyone shipping Rakes and Marion? That's that's a question. No. You don't know, Shannon. If you're shipping them, stop listening. Her scenes with him are more interesting than when she runs into Larry Russell on the street and they talk about, you know, how he, daddy won't let him be an architect or whatever. I think there's something more interesting there with how both of the Russell's children seem a little stunted compared to the rest of their age group. And we're not like, but we're not like getting into it. It's just like, oh, the their parents are controlling because they have a vision of the future. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but do you think Bertha is holding out for a duke for Gladys? Oh man! Like, I think that the only like she's holding out for for British royalty. I think. What else could she be holding out for? I could see that happening in the finale, like a duke arrives in town and Bertha's finally like, at last, what I've been waiting for, you know? It would be interesting if that was already in the mix, because I am getting a little tired of some of the repetition of just being like, that's not what I want. And it's like, well, what, what is what you want? Because let's, let's dig into this a little deeper. You know, like I said, she has a drive, she has a want, but at this point, seven episodes in... I would like to be really like getting down into the grit of that instead of just see, now seeing her and Mr. Russell bicker over, you know, her being so concerned about a party when the train derailed or whatever. Like that, those have those don't ring as true to me. Um, those scenes between the two of them as when they are on the same page. Yeah, they're a really great couple when they're on the same page, and I feel like the whole train derailment is just a device to introduce some friction in their relationship. Because Turner is Chekhov's lady's maid. They showed her breasts in episode four. We're going to see them again in episode nine. (laughs) You think she's going to come back? Because I was kind of like, please let this ship have sailed. Like, it just didn't work. She seems even more cartoonish than half the characters. Like, she just was, her vibe was not working for me. Her tone is very different. She is very cartoonish, like you were saying. Well, maybe she's not coming back, which would be perfectly fine with me. Although, what's um, Oscar going to do now? Oh, Oscar will think of something. I'm not worried about him. I mean, this would be a fine tradition to continue over from Downton Abbey, as far as I'm concerned, is when a maid is getting boring, just ship her off. <laughs> like, <laughs> Send her to India. I don't mind that. I think that was a little bit of a failed attempt. It, I don't want Mr. Russell to get caught like he's an idiot for not just like telling Bertha and getting the maid fired immediately but like I was relieved that they didn't have you know Bertha sees her around the corner coming out of the bedroom or anything like that 
but it also is kind of like, well, that that's the only place the storyline even could have gone. So why bother? You know, it's interesting that the reason Bertha ends up firing her is because I think she thinks that Turner's having some kind of liaison with Larry. Turner puts her hand on every man's arm. What a slut. It just seems like such a big deal that she showed up in George's bedroom. Naked. Naked. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, it's so much effort to show up anywhere naked, and she just shows up. <laughs> I mean, my God, were you walking around in this robe throughout the hallway? I mean, it's a big house. That's true. She had to sneak through all the hallways in the robe. I didn't even think. I mean, it's that. just totally impractical. <laughs> I've lost my way to the bathroom. You live here, but so much trouble to set up that whole scene. It's a long scene. There's a lot going on when she's in there. Plus, she obviously signed some sort of breast release that they could show them, right? Because you have to agree to that stuff. This is HBO. Someone has to show their tits. That's, That's true. I guess so. I was trying not to say tits, but okay. <laughs> I'll say it. I just think that, that there was an incredible amount of effort put into that whole scene, that situation. And to have her just sort of fired and walk away to me seems kind of anticlimactic. Not that I want George to do anything, but at the same time, I don't know why you would let that go. Yeah, I don't know why you let it go either. I just, I'm ready for Gladys to wear a proper dress that she looks like those dolls at the doll tea, which was disturbing. Oh my God. (laughs) At Mamie Fish's doll party. (laughs) It's disturbing. She's got the same terrible hairstyle and horrible dress. This all of her dresses are terrible. And I'm ready for her, like, I'm ready for her she's all that moment. Like, let's get her glammed up and get her to the to the ball, you know, because it's just tragic. Yeah, please tell me the coming out ball is gonna happen before the end of the season because Can someone get her some anti-frizz hairspray? I mean she's trying she's doing the best with what she has and also now that she's best friends with uh carrie astor like Mm -hmm. i I like that i like their friendship a lot actually i think it's cool that they're friends and i gotta say you know carrie astor's dresses are really over the top also so (laughs) oh my god that last one she wore with like the peach and the blue like balls on her dress I was literally like I feel overwhelmed by looking at this it's kind of like a magic eye painting I don't know it's gonna pop out of me but I've always liked Carrie Astor I like when she showed up at Mamie Fish's Newport party and was chatting with uh, Larry she seems very down to earth she definitely seems like she's over having a more interesting life than Gladys that we could be watching (laughs) but we're not Yeah, I mean, it seems like Bertha's ascent into society is going pretty well after the, you know, humiliation of the open house that no one showed up at. Like, you know, getting on the Red Cross board. But what about Ann Morris? She just shows up. She's just like, she's like the ghost of Christmas past, just showing up, clanking her chains everywhere. (laughs) It's just like, go away. Shannon... You're so mean. Oh, she's bullying. She's a total elitist. Look, I'm Team Russell. So first of all, her husband loses all their money. And instead of figuring out how he's going to work to make his money back, 
he shoots himself in the head, therefore consigning the whole Morris family to ruin. She clearly has no money left. I don't know what her life looks like right now. I'm thinking House of Mirth, personally. Like, she's sitting in a small room doing, like, being a seamstress between shots of opium. And she does still show up at a couple different things that are meant to be fundraisers for the Red Cross, though. So it's kind of like you're still showing up even though you can't write a check anymore. Like, I was a little, I guess I was a little confused about how much her station has actually fallen because of this event. Like, some clarity on that would be helpful. I mean, she has a higher status than Mrs. Chamberlain. Yeah. It seems like she's going about this all wrong. Like, she still could be besties with Aurora Fane. Like, she should be leaning into the sympathy instead of, you know, burning down what little she has left, which it seems like that's what she's doing. She's so angry, but I don't blame her. No. But also, there is there is this acceptance of the um, person from an incredibly good family who has no money. Right. Like... That's kind of a trope, and that's like an accepted person in society, like in Titanic, right? Rose's mother. Right. Like, I feel like she would be sort of like waiting out the mourning period and trying to, you know, nab a rich widower somewhere, right? Like a second husband. Not with that attitude. She'd look so much nicer if she smiled. I'm just not going to feel like crying tears over the rich and how they have no skills and, oh, no, we, you know, pittered away our inherited wealth and now poor us you know i'm just not going i'm a team russell you build your wealth we can build it again we work in this family in previous episodes aurora looks like he's she's throwing up a little in her mouth every time she sees bertha russell and now she's like yes we'll do this and this and ward McAllister. maybe i'm reading too much into it but like those luncheons with ward and bertha look more fun than anything else that anyone's done right and i think aurora's having a good time despite herself. I would love to see them become, like, legit besties instead of just sort of, like, we're each, you know, scheming for our own purposes and we can help each other. Uh, Because, yeah, no one else is throwing a party like Bertha does. No one else is giving you, you know, an engraved flask or whatever it was just for fun. I would want to be friends with her. I would be like, I mean, literally, here's another question I have. Agnes is so concerned about who's allowed out in society. And yet, have we even seen her outside of her own house or the dress shop? No. Like, does she, she doesn't even go to society. She doesn't go to the opera. She, ran, like, took a carriage to the park one time. Like, how is she going to defend her station when she doesn't show up to anything? Can I just jump in with my favorite line of Agnes's? When Marion is asking her if she wants to go to the opera, and Agnes says, I would rather be put to death. <laughs> Christine Baranski's delivery on that line is like, so perfect. I laughed out loud. Uh, her delivery is always perfect. I mean, she's arguing with the dressmaker about the size of her bustle. Like, she's not into the new smaller bustles. Like, it's all very funny, but it really does make me wonder, like, how does she expect anyone to care about her opinion when she never sees anyone outside of her own household. It is sort of weird. I think also, I think Tom and Lorenzo pointed this out, but Agnes is so obsessed with Bertha Russell pushing in and like Bertha barely knows that Agnes is across the street. Yeah. Agnes is not the person she has her sights on. So 
the feud is a little lopsided there. Watching Agnes fall asleep on the couch in her very stuffy outfit this last episode <laughs> just made me so grateful to live in the era where I can just wear yoga pants and no bra and just be totally comfy and not have to fall asleep in a corset and bustle on like a horrible. This stiff is why couch. she always wants to have an early night so she can get out of her corset. <laughs> I, I get it. I'd be like, I'm done with my night at 6 p.m. just to get out of my corset. I did love the juxtaposition of like everybody's having a great time at the electricity party. And then poor Marion is stuck at home with Ada and Agnes sitting inside again because they don't leave the house to Brandy's point. Eating another stuffy dinner and it's like everybody's outside having their little tables and their carriages, getting wasted, talking about the future and electricity. I mean, that sounds way more Carriage picnics. We need to bring that back. I mean, that was like a Bernie Man party. (laughs) It was just like wild. It looked really fun. It was great. I do always start to wonder. I'm like, oh, they're drinking champagne. Like you're in a carriage in the middle of that place. What happens when you need to pee? In that dress with that bustle, like, what's the plan? I love that scene also because it was such a mass of people. Like, that's a that's a lot of people and a lot of stuff going on. And I just thought it was so beautifully done. Like, you could feel the excitement in the air. You could see different kinds of people doing different kinds of things. I really was like, I'm so happy they showed this. Like... This was such an exciting time in history. And of course people would want to have champagne carriage parties, you know? And I felt really bad for Marianne being stuck at home. We do need to talk about two other people that we haven't talked about yet. One is Mrs. Chamberlain and her house of ill repute. And the other is the great Ward McAllister, played by the great Nathan Lane. Let's start with Mrs. Chamberlain. She is the coolest person on this show and yet shunned she's classic cool girl she's got all the art she was a mistress she's rich she knows how to pick out a wooden box she's cool i would love to know a little bit more about why she stays yeah maybe that's the house she lived in with her husband and you know certainly she has an amazing art collection it's been very cool to see all those references to I love, you know, a Degas, you know, <laughs> who doesn't love a Degas? But, uh, you know, if it was me, I would just be like, I think I'm going to sell and move to Philadelphia and maybe make a friend, you know? <laughs> or move to Nice. Go to the south of France. Yeah, a do something. A little less buttoned up. If you're that rich and if you like art that much, yeah, just go, go to Europe. Have some fun. The one thing I will say about Mrs. Chamberlain is... The dresses she wore in episodes one and three were spectacular. And now she has adopted some kind of puffy sleeve look on all her dresses. The other ones had non-puffy puffy sleeves. The puffy sleeves are not working for her. She looks dowdy suddenly. I love your scientific analysis. I had to go back and, and her, her costume. I had to go back and look. She's now entered puffy sleeve. No, because I'm looking at her and going, she doesn't. She just doesn't look as good as she did before. And it's because of the the style of dress she's now wearing in every single scene, which is this puffy sleeve thing. Well, Ward McAllister always looks fabulous. Oh God. Then on the last episode, he mentioned a wife, and I was like, oh, okay. 
There's a Slate article about how Warren McAllister is a real person, and he, you know, was a tastemaker of upper society, and then his downfall was that he uh, published a tell-all memoir, which was also quite racist. (laughs) Uh, Surprise, surprise. And all the rich people shunned him. So he was not rich himself. But he knew how to dress well. Right. He had a fairly small house in an unfashionable area. So he never entertained at home. He used to throw the most fabulous picnics, including carriage picnics, probably. Yep. And he went to Delmonico's. So he was a real person. With a real wife. Listen, I can I, I can uh, identify with that, being a person without a lot of money who lives in a studio apartment. And when I want to throw a party, it happens at a bar or a restaurant. You know, like, all that's fine. But I don't position myself to be a judge of everyone else and what they're doing and whether who they're allowed to invite to their home. So how does one get that job? I really feel like a problem with the show is we've seen so little of Mrs. Astor. She's just this, like, idea. She's this image. But I'm just, we need to spend some time with her. I, I'm, I'm losing faith in her power. Mrs. Astor. I gotta think it's coming if you cast Donna Murphy, like, you're gonna use her at some point, right? Also from Center Stage, so yes. Yeah, Donna Murphy's great. I just, I don't know. She's sort of like this ghostly figure in the background. The all-seeing, all yeah. all-knowing Mrs. Astor. Let's pull back the curtain already. Well, if, if Bertha is going to have a coming-out ball for Gladys then I guess the big get is going to be Mrs. Astor, right? You want Mrs. Astor to show up at your ball. So I feel like we've just been building up through all of these episodes to the climactic scene where Mrs. Astor walks through the door. That does feel like the climax. The transformation is complete. And also Agnes and Ada, I think, will be at the ball, judging by some stills I've seen. Hmm. Look, if if Mrs. Astor is going to be at the ball, then Agnes and Ada can be at the ball. So what do we think is going to happen in the the next final two episodes? Mr. Rakes is going to get together with What's-Her-Face from the carriage, and Marianne will cry. But I really do think Mr. Rakes will be proven to be an adventurer. I think, yeah, I think we'll have the coming out ball. It'll be very interesting to see the maneuvering of Oscar Van Ryn around that. Oh, my God, I just thought of something. Do you think if at the coming out ball, Mr. Russell gets arrested? Mm. Oh. It's like a scandal on top of, it's her ascent to society, but then the downfall. Oh, man, I like that. I do like that. Might be too dramatic for Julian. He doesn't usually like to go that dramatic, but. That's a good, I, I would enjoy that. I, I do really like, like, just like the imagery of Bertha being like, oh, should I go down to the station or should I stay at the party? <laughs> like, what, what do you think Bertha's going to wear? I don't know how she could possibly top her opera ensemble. Yeah, I, I know I was saying that this era of fashion is not for me and I'm not as into it as you guys, but that opera ensemble, I mean, any, any, like, fuck you red dress is always going to get me and that one was a good one (laughs) the train with the flowers on the train coming down the stairs and then that whole like structured cape it was wonderful she's fabulous it's the most i've ever enjoyed carrie coon in anything and i'm still shocked that i'm just loving her in this role she's you're the only person who doesn't like carrie coon everyone else loves her i'll die on this hill alone it's fine 
But I love her as I love her as Bertha Russell. I think she's an absolute perfect casting. And we know we're going to get a setting up for the party montage, which I always love. But will it be Church or will it be Bannister? <laughs> oh my God! Do you think Bertha would steal Bannister? Hell yeah, she would. Well, the truth is, okay, if you're playing the long game like Bertha is, if you're going to catch a duke for your daughter, you better have the glasses laid out properly. And that's the moral of the story. That's the moral of the story. Do we think Agnes will leave the house? I guess we think she's going to go to the ball. Do we think Ada will ever take her own dog on a walk? Well, we're really excited to see what happens in the final two episodes. And we will do a podcast at the end to talk about the entire first season of Gilded Age. As always, we always want to end with one fabulous thing. So what is one fabulous thing that you have been watching or reading or experiencing that you want to share with everybody? I'm going to recommend a show that's just like sports for food lovers and that is tournament of champions on the food network (laughs) i cannot tell you how much i love the show which is just a bunch of like celebrity chefs in a bracket where they go head to head on a challenge guy fieri hosts it i i personally am not a guy fieri hater i think like do your thing (laughs) you go guy but um it is, I can't describe how entertaining it is. And the first season aired like right when the pandemic started. So maybe that's why I like, you know, emotionally attached to this show. <laughs> but season three has only aired a couple episodes so far. And if you have access to the Food Network, I recommend catching up on it because it's just like pure exhilarating fun. I am going to recommend a book which I rarely do, but it's a book that I I have read several times now. It is called The Future of Another Timeline by Annalee Newitz. It is a feminist science fiction time travel novel that is very hard to explain, but basically time travel is a thing. Our heroine is a geologist and her secret feminist organization called the Daughters of Harriet have realized that somebody is going back in time trying to alter history to make the world better for men. And basically, these female geologist feminists are fighting these men's rights activists from the future through time. And it's, and, and it's like fun. It's a really fun book. Um, so that's my one fabulous thing. Okay, I was trying to think about what I was going to do. And I think I'm going to mention something that's, you know, not for everyone. But uh, it's definitely for ice skating nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at Brandy. And that is Meddling on Peacock, which was produced by Tara Lipinski and her husband. And it's about um, the uh, ice skating Olympic scandal from 2002 when the um, it was in the Paris skating and the Russians got the gold over the Canadians. And this basically, this scandal revolutionized uh, ice skating scoring. And it is such a, an amazing docu-series. It's only four episodes. It's extremely dramatic. There's so much I didn't know about this, including the FBI was involved. You got to watch it to find out why. And it was, I binged it all in a night, and it was fascinating. And I really hope that Tara and her husband, Todd, do one about everything that we experience in the women's single skating 
in um, the last Olympics, which was also very dramatic. But they interview everybody, including the French judge. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know, it's a big deal. They got the French judge. How do you spell that? It's like meddling, like I'm meddling in your affairs. M-E-D-D-L-I-N-G. Anyways, check out meddling on Peacock. Thank you for listening to Downton Gabby slash Gilded Gabby. And we are looking forward to sharing our thoughts on the final two episodes in a couple weeks. Thank you for being along for the ride. And you can follow us on Twitter and find us on anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.